1: to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And Ramon is present. And Jonathan, I'm so happy that our Patreon dollars has helped us create this uh, bunker in which we sit. Uh, Unfortunately, we didn't think about having solar power, so we are choking on paraffin fumes uh, from our (laughs) gas Yes, because uh, ESCOM has been kind enough to load shed our
2: bunker, located in a very secret location under a, a prominent mountain in the
1: Western Cape. So if this recording sounds a little bit different uh please excuse us our studio is completely screwed uh thanks to SCOM not having enough electricity so we have to record it elsewhere but i mean you know despite the suffering we we find ways to bring you your favorite podcast I mean, despite the suffering the black market of podcasting is thriving <laughs> and we are at the forefront of that absolutely
2: and for those people um overseas who don't understand what we're talking about Uh, South Africa has gone down the path of socialism, and uh, part of that is that one of the things the government owns uh, when it comes to the means of production is electricity. And as a result, uh, the government has run the electricity provider into the ground, and we are currently experiencing load shedding, which does sound quite um, uh, obscene. It is, uh, but not in the way you think. Uh, what that results in is rolling blackouts at different uh, in different parts of the country for anywhere from two to four to eight hours um, on a daily basis. Uh, and this is uh, the reward we get for for going down this uh, rather um, storied pass, path. And uh, we're
1: going to be talking to a guest today who's going to tell us all about it. Ramon, do you want to introduce our guest? So our guest today is Christian Limitz, who is a Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London. Welcome to the show, Christian. Thanks so much for joining us. Hello. So, Christian, um, following you on Twitter is quite a, a, a nice thing to do. It's my guilty pleasure because you have this obsession with, with socialism uh, for some reason. And um, But as far as I'm aware, socialism hasn't actually been tried properly yet. So why are you talking about this... Uh, mirage all the
0: time yeah i've heard that argument once or twice um in fact as it happens i've just written uh, i was just finished writing a book on the history of this claim real socialism has never been tried which uh, is going to be published next week on thursday thursday the 21st and um, the, the curious thing about socialism is uh, that Socialist experiments have always gone through a honeymoon period during which they are widely and enthusiastically endorsed by plenty of Western intellectuals. So the Soviet Union in the 1930s was extremely popular among Western intellectuals. Maoist China was in the 1960s and so on. And it's only when they either collapse or when they, their failures become more widely known that suddenly Western socialists try to redefine them. They, they look for reasons for uh, disputing the socialist credentials of that system. So that's when they suddenly go, Oh no, actually that wasn't socialism. Now that we've had a second look at it and, um, After a couple of years, then it becomes a conventional wisdom that the system in question, whether it's the Soviet Union, whether it's Maoism, um, or now Venezuela being the more recent one, uh, conventional wisdom becomes that that was never socialism, had nothing to do with it, and that it's just nasty liberal uh, capitalists like me who claim that it was socialism because we use that as a way to defame socialism.
2: Well. Perhaps we can start with a good old definition because yes. uh, we can't defame something that has a fixed definition. Um, so let's let's stick to a fixed definition and then we can talk about all these examples, all these failures um, and sure. modern day examples, including uh, the country we're sitting in.
0: Okay. Yeah, I don't have a particularly exotic definition of my own. I stick quite strictly to the dictionary definition which says something like collective or state ownership of the means of production or state controlled economy or some variation of that. Mm -hmm. Because the good thing about that definition is that that is perfectly value neutral and outcome neutral. So the dictionary definition of socialism doesn't say anything about gulags or show trials or mass executions, but neither does it say this will lead to a worker's paradise. It really just describes a way of structuring an economy, and what outcomes that produces then remains to be seen. But if you apply the dictionary definition, collective ownership, government ownership of the means of production, government uh, organizing economic activity, then according to that definition, the Soviet Union clearly was socialist, all of its allies in Eastern Europe clearly were socialist. North Korea is definitely socialist, yeah. and some of some of the African countries that uh, in in the seventies and eighties that experimented with socialism were, as it says, as it said on the tin, socialist. And uh, it, it is pretty clear then. And Venezuela today has moved at least a lot further into that direction. So they still have. A relatively large private sector It's just that that private sector is also indirectly controlled by the government. The government sets prices, government um, controls exchange rates and, and so on. So this is not full scale socialism, but certainly much closer to socialism than it was uh, 20 years ago. By the way, think... it's not me. It's not me making up definitions here. I really stick to the dictionary definition and uh, government ownership of the means of production. That really is what socialism is.
2: Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. Although, as we know, the dictionary is a is a tool of the patriarchy, so it can't really be trusted. But um, and who funds
0: the dictionary, anyway?
2: <laughs> true story. Who does <laughs> Who does fund the dictionary? Um, <laughs> great point. Um, I, I, I think I think on uh, to elaborate and to advance on that point is that really, as long as you take that as a base definition, it doesn't matter how you get to the end point. Um, It's always in a horrible fashion. So whether that's in the Soviet Union and you've got uh, gulags, um, whether it's in Venezuela and ultimately people are eating their pets, um, uh, whether it's in any of the other countries where it's inverted commas being tried and there's financial ruin and collapse of uh, the the private sector, small businesses um, and just society in general – uh, that always seems to be the end point of trying to institute um, this this way of governing.
0: Yes, and it always happens in similar ways. It's not just that it always fails. It fails along predictable lines. Mm. And then that's, of course, not a coincidence. That's because you cannot coordinate an economy without the price system. The price system is just absolutely necessary to collect information about conditions of supply and demand and to disseminate that information the price system is just a way that uh, a mechanism that allows us to um to respond to changes in the outside world let's say some resource is becoming scarcer or some other resource becoming more abundant we may not know why that is why that happened we just see it reflected in changes in prices and we adjust our behavior in some way and this happens in market economies all the time and in that way that coordinates our activities that means there are neither surpluses nor nor shortages of something we economize on things that are scarce and we economize less on things that are more abundant and use resources efficiently in that way that's uh a mechanism that no socialist economy has yet been able to uh, to substitute. So, market economies do this automatically; we don't even think about it. It's it's just something that that we do all the time. It's a function in, of the system. Yes, absolutely. Whereas under socialism, you either have a planning board that are, that directly sets prices; you don't have market prices at all, or you have, like in Venezuela. Something my, like market prices, but then the government overriding it and uh, intervening and telling producers, "No, you can't charge three dollars. Uh, it's maximum two fifty or so," and uh, that can be just as bad as uh, fully state control prices.
1: Yeah, it's a bit like um, there's a very famous essay or video called "I pencil." Uh, made in the 70s or 80s i think it was an essay actually and it just describes how to make a pencil and it it involves tens of thousands of people in hundreds of countries doing what they are doing and then miraculously at the end of everything you get a pencil but the graphite is from argentina the wood is from brazil the uh ink or the whatever the lead inside is from germany But no one has the intention of creating a pencil. They just intend to just make graphite or make wood or make paint, things like that. Yes, exactly. Others combine it and combine it and combine it and then you get a pencil. But to try to control the way a pencil is made is practically impossible because no one has that knowledge in and of themselves.
0: Yes, that knowledge is dispersed. That was also the argument that Hayek, the economist, made, that uh, those people who are involved in the production of the pencil, they all know something about their circumstances of time and place, or at least of their own preferences, and they they act upon it. But uh, no single person, no single organization um, can combine and concentrate uh, this dispersed knowledge that these millions of people Process and are, are acting upon. So you just have to give them the freedom and to to let them do whatever it is that they're doing and allow market prices and market institutions to coordinate that activity. But it's not something that you could steer or control.
1: Well, absolutely. But unfortunately, people do try to control it, uh, even in, in what we call you know, free countries like the US and others. I mean, there are still uh, government impositions and uh nudges that that try to regulate a market of uh, of sorts. But what, what do you think the uh, the intention behind trying to control the market is at the end of the day? Because is is you know do socialists intend
0: to become totalitarians? Usually not. Of course you, you always get opportunists whenever a political movement is in the ascendancy. You always get people who join it last minute because they think this is the thing to do now. Um, and, and that may explain a little bit. But if you think about the leaders of socialist revolutions in the past, uh, those were usually people who joined the socialist cause when it seemed like a lost cause. And an opportunist, for me, is somebody who joins a promising cause. It's somebody who, uh, when, when a party or a movement is already in the ascendancy, uh, then jumps on the bandwagon, thinking, "Oh, there might be a lucrative career in this." But actually, people like Lenin and Stalin, in particular, they joined the, the predecessor of the uh, the Communist Party when it was an irrelevant fringe movement. In uh the early 20th century that when when it had no hope of ever coming to power and lenin and stalin therefore also spent most of their uh their their uh, younger adult lives either in prison or uh, escaping from the tsarist police somewhere in hiding in, in the underground or in forced exile uh, stalin in particular was was exiled to uh siberia and uh those people really had joined that cause when it was absolutely not clear that they would ever rule uh, the, uh, such a large and, and massive country. They had no hope of coming to power in, initially. It was then something completely unforeseeable, which was the First World War and all the destabilization of that cause. And then a democratic revolution in in, uh, in, in the beginning of 1917, which then left an even more unstable government. But it was really conditions that nobody could have foreseen. This is not the way that opportunists act. Those uh, people, as as despicable as their actions were, you have to give it to them that they believed in their cause. And this is, this is just the Soviet Union. You, you could say the same thing about, uh, plenty of other socialist leaders. So Fidel Castro and Che Guevara fought, of course, in the, in the Cuban mountains as, uh, as, as guerrilla fighters. And that's where, that's probably where, why we use that Spanish word for, uh, for partisan f- fighters. Uh, it probably comes from them, that they fought this, what seemed like a hopeless battle for a long time. And then came to power. The, the future leaders of the, of the GDR of East Germany were people who were persecuted under, under fascism and Nazism. So these, these were not people who, uh, joined a bandwagon, but they picked a cause early on and then stuck with it. So you, j- just from looking at the biographies of these people, you, you really can't uh, claim that they, they were just after power. They did believe in The ideals of socialism and they come to power came to power not with the intention of um of just enriching themselves
2: i think we often mention on the show that um the road to hell is paved with good intentions and and so um it's often so-called good people with good ideas good intentions um who uh, support inverted commas good causes uh who who then go on to uh, support socialism. So we can see it in in countries that haven't embraced socialism, really, um, but there are socialist movements. The United States is a good example currently. They seem to be going through a phase where there's a couple of politicians pushing very socialist ideas um, around their economy. I mean, Bernie Sanders in the the previous uh, presidential election, um, you know, I mean, he was almost the nominee on the Democrat side um, arguably, if, if it hadn't have been Hillary Clinton and a bit of horseplay that went on there, Bernie Sanders would have been essentially a socialist running for 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 the top office in, in that country, and and he may very well have, have beaten Trump. Um, and and so a, a lot of people think, you know, the ideas that come with socialism. Well, we should all share, um, and we should all uh, be nice and kind to each other. And so that's where a lot of um, you know, the the general public who may not be very au fait with these ideas. They haven't read Hayek and they they haven't gone back into the history and they don't truly know um, what Marx said and what, um, you know, Hegel said and what people have interpreted those things to mean since then. Uh, Sure. And it's interesting because often if you sort of say to someone who believes in a certain ideology, okay, what would you do if someone didn't agree with you and Uh, they said they were going to do their own thing. Then what would you do next? Um, And Mm. the answer with regards to socialism and socialists uh, never seems to be we'd just let them be. It always seems to be we would persecute them. Now, they may not openly admit that, but that's how the system ends up. Do you think that is a feature of socialism?
0: That is a defining feature of socialism, because once you have a central plan in place, you cannot allow local autonomy. And that is the reason why systems uh, socialist systems become more totalitarian over time the soviet union for example was uh, initially i mean it depends on which aspects you're looking at they were persecuting dissenters right from the start that was baked into the russian revolution but things like controlling the movement of people that's something that only really started once they started out rolling out the uh, start of rolling out the first 5 year plan in the late twenties early thirties that's uh, and there, there's a reason for that that's when they brought in this internal passport system where you needed a residence permit where you could no longer say i'm going to move from St. Petersburg to Moscow because I, I feel like it uh, where you needed a, a state permit and 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 that's the reasons are perfectly clear once you have a five year plan in place, then your labor is allocated somewhere some planner in moscow has decided that you're going to work for this factory in that place and going to live in in the house that they've allocated to you and then you have to stay there you can't just suddenly uh, up your sticks and decide to move around because then you would jumble the five year plan mm. and that's why they have to have this power to to enforce things and that's and why
2: then, and then enforcement was- is is through violence usually i mean <laughs> because that's the only way you can enforce um, sort of these types of things against large populations.
0: Yeah, sure, and that's mm-hmm. why a ban on immigration is then a perfectly logical extension of that. When you have in in a market economy, uh, immigration is not such a huge problem. We've seen in several Eastern European countries after socialism that they've had a large brain drain, and of course that causes damage they will probably be more prosperous if uh if that brain drain had not occurred or they would definitely be more prosperous but nonetheless they they can sort of cope with it and that's uh, because they have uh, they are now market economies and uh, the the price system and the wage system can adjust to that they have to pay more for certain professions because they, they know that otherwise, uh, they can't get them. Those people emigrate. And in a, in a socialist system, you don't have that mechanism in, in place. So that's why you need internal immigration controls because you don't have a market for, for housing, for example, where rents can adjust and, uh, where if lots of people move from, from St. Petersburg to Moscow, where that, that rents would fall in St. Petersburg and rise in Moscow, that, that mechanism doesn't exist. It's all allocated by a central planning board, which is less flexible. So you, you have to impose restrictions on people, the same on with the labor market. And, um, it's even harder for a socialist economy to cope with immigration because you have a plan a five year plan that is based on the labor force as it is at the time of the drafting of the plan, and then when you suddenly have large numbers of people deciding to emigrate, then your plan is basically worthless and that 's the reason why the Berlin Wall was built it 's not that they came to power thinking uh, we 're going to build a wall and divide the country and uh, shoot everyone who who's trying to leave. They tried for a while less extreme forms are tried to appeal to people's consciousness saying don't don't you feel that you're part of our socialist community you can't just go away or uh, trying to portray life in the west as as a hellhole saying do you really want to go there look at how horrible the west is you're going to be exploited by capitalists and so on when none of that worked it's only when they've tried all the milder options first that's when they said okay there's just no other way of doing this let's build a wall
1: and, and that is one of the most, the more terrifying aspects of socialism. Uh, Jordan Peterson had this great um, a speech about people that say, well, you know, if I was in charge, I would have done it differently. Um, and, and he says that is, that is so fundamentally untrue because as, as you just mentioned, the feature is totalitarianism and no amount of goodwill or, you know charitable demeanor would change that in any way. the system itself corrupts you endlessly, and the only the only answer uh, the only way for the system to work is through coercion
0: Yes, I suppose a socialist would now respond, well, it's not about a nicer person being in charge. I'm not saying I want to be the next Stalin or the next." Uh, Mao or the next Pol Pot, and I would be nicer. The argument, the argument would be that nobody should have that power. Nobody should be uh, in a position of in in a position that, that Stalin and Mao were in. It should all be dispersed and democratically controlled. It's just that there is no mechanism through which a large population can manage their affairs collectively how, how is this supposed to work in practice if you think of a, a country like britain we got 65 million people here we all have different preferences different priorities how would we ever decide on a joint economic plan you could try to gather the whole 65 million somewhere and um have roving mics and have them all suggest what they want to produce or or something, but it it would just, you would, you would never get anything done. It would be complete chaos. You can do this in a small group. That's why there's nothing wrong with a system like the Israeli kibbutz, which you could describe as small scale socialism or voluntary socialism within a self-selected group. But that's because in a kibbutz, you have maybe a hundred or 200 people and, they have relatively simple economies. they specialize on mostly agriculture or some of them now uh, a bit some a bit more advanced more more advanced industries, but nonetheless a relatively limited range and These are people who all know each other. they see themselves as a community, and there it is feasible to gather the whole community and to discuss production plans for the next year. You can have all two hundred gathering and just debating what they should do, whether they should plant more wheat or more rye next year and that's perfectly possible to do that in that way but as you said once you have firstly a larger group and secondly a more complex economy you mentioned iPencil um, that's when this mechanism no longer works you have to delegate things and that's how you ultimately get uh, something like a planning board or some technocratic elite making decisions because it's just no longer feasible to control everything in a democratic way.
1: Yeah we we speak to a few socialists uh, on this podcast and the, the examples they give are often the kibbutz or like some cooperatives in South America that somehow have managed to produce dairy that they sell to corporations and yeah, it works if you know if you know the two hundred people that work under you, and you all have uh, control over the shares of a cooperative. It's not that difficult to do. People do that every single day in their own families, but to impose that sort of system onto a massively complex economy uh, is is is
2: laughable. Really. I, I think I think the family example is the best one. I mean, it, it literally is from each according uh, to his ability to each according to his need. Um, you know, the family is a sort of communist unit in a way. Um, there's sort of central planning by our parents usually. Um, uh, you know, uh, no in, in, in a sort of functional unit, you would expect that one child's not necessarily favored that much over another. So the children get equal things, even if the one child excels particularly well at school and the other one doesn't. Um, and, and And that tends to work in those small units. But as soon as you try to replicate that, and multiply it out, uh, it, it it becomes a complete failure. As you mentioned, I think if you if you got the sixty million odd people from the UK together, well, they can't even decide on Brexit. So, um, but if you mm-hmm. manage to get them together, uh, imagine the amount of time it would take you to to get everyone um, to give their opinions, and then you'd never get them to agree anyway.
0: Yeah, if you, that's that's a good uh, comparison, if you look at how we we're currently. Uh, having massive political divisions because of Brexit, it's, uh, it can sometimes feel like a minor civil war. And imagine how bad it would be if we had to decide jointly on how much beer we should brew and what type of beer that should be. There would, would be an absolute meltdown. So these, these are things that you really do not want to politicize, quite, quite apart from the efficiency arguments that it would be inefficient and wouldn't work properly. It would also be a recipe for a constant social conflict. Because it would create a situation where everyone has to agree with everyone. And the good thing about a market economy, a decentralized economy, is that when people don't agree, they can do separate things. They can go their separate ways. You don't have to agree with everyone on everything. Sometimes you can just agree to disagree, and that would be that. You can't do that yeah. in a socialist economy. Well, well, well I think and
2: the supermarket's the best example of agreeing and to disagree, right? Uh, yeah, everyone, true. not everyone, but a large proportion of the world eats breakfast. Um, but they all disagree amongst groups what the best breakfast is. Some uh, eat uh, Cocoa Pops and or Rice Krispies. That's already a difference. Some want to eat muesli. Some want to eat some sort of um, fresh breakfast uh, fruit, perhaps. So... Uh, you know, the the, the the even in the smallest things um, and and human activity, uh, you get disagreement amongst amongst individuals.
0: Yes, if you had a people's breakfast, that would be the recipe for <laughs> a, a constant civil war. The, well, the closest thing,
2: North Korea.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's because they probably have an <laughs> an expert perfect. committee and, and they don't have uh, debates yeah. about this. If you say something against the dear de-leaders decision of the people's breakfast, then you wouldn't be around for long. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I, I guess the closest thing to that that we already have is uh, the, the state uh, broadcaster, the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, where uh, even though it is an institution that commands relatively high levels of approval, mo- most people think BBC is rather good, you often do get uh, debates that let's say the BBC has someone on who promotes a right-wing point of view and then you get left-wing saying this is a scandal, that person shouldn't be there, they shouldn't be given airtime. But then the same kind of thing can happen in in the opposite direction and it uh, it's because everybody feels that the BBC is somehow theirs and therefore there's this intolerance to the BBC promoting a message that you don't like, which you wouldn't do with a private medium if – um the guardian which is a left wing newspaper says something that i don't like i'm not going to complain about it because that's what i expect that's of course that's what the guardian does i, I would never expect it to yeah. uh, and you can to unsubscribe promote. if you if you happen to pay them you have the choice. Yeah, well, yeah i i sort of can't bring myself to do it i hate read it as a form of <laughs> self But but uh, yes yes so
1: let 's talk about intellectuals for a moment, so i 'm a big fan of of, of watching and lefties getting owned on youtube for example it 's one of my favorite pastimes so a few, a few last week, I believe Andrew Neal spoke to Ken Livingston, the, the ex mayor of London, and this man was making all sorts of excuses for the uh, goings on in Venezuela and blaming sanctions. And then yes. Andrew Neil said, Yeah, there were sanctions imposed three days ago, but the, the economy has halved in the last 10 years. So you can't blame the sanctions. And he, he refused to, to move away from sanctions, Western imperialism and
0: uh, whatever. Amer- like, American imperialism. Yeah,
1: things like that. Uh, he well, couldn't name it, a the...
0: sanction. That was the thing. Andrew yeah. Neil kept pressing him, what sanctions yeah. are those? Can you name one? When was it introduced? What does it do? What's the scope? He couldn't do that. Uh, yeah, I, I see that now but on the, social media but, all the yeah, time. Uh, but
1: how can someone like King Livingston, who is, well, I, well I, I'm not, he's not an ignorant man, why does someone like that, and there are many like him, would, mm-hmm. would defend such a thing? at all
0: well, it 's a selective form of ignorance it 's um, not ignorance in the sa- in the sense of simply not knowing but in the sense of not wanting to know and deliberately editing what you see selective seeing and unseeing and and not seeing so this the same person Ken uh, Livingston was on some radio program two years before where he said Venezuela is in crisis because they didn't kill the oligarchs. Now this was, of course, before sanctions were brought in, and he needed a different excuse then. So back then, and this wasn't just him; this was also the Venezuela state uh, or, or quasi-state broadcaster uh, making that excuse. It's uh, the, the former oligarchs are deliberately causing food shortages. They are stealing and hoarding all the food, and uh, at that time, Livingston was using that excuse. It's and then this, the, the sanctions came along and provided him with a new excuse. So now he's jumping to that. But two years ago, three years ago, he was also on TV, also on the radio, also talking about uh, why Venezuela was in crisis, never mentioned sanctions. Of course, there's a good reason for that, which is back then there weren't any sanctions. Were only really brought in one and a half years ago in the summer of 2017. That was when... U.S. citizens were banned from purchasing Venezuelan government bonds. So before that, you had only personalized sanctions. You had individual asset freezes for selected members of the the regime, which meant they could no longer travel to, to the U.S. They could no longer invest there. And um, that... It's a bad thing if you are one of those people, then you, you will feel the effect of those sanctions, but it could not possibly have an effect on the wider economy. If you just sanction 12 people, then how is that supposed to affect the GDP of the country or food supply or um, or or revenue of, of exports or whatever it is? It's just completely impossible. Yeah. So san- sanctions were really, in, in a meaningful sense, only brought in one and a half years ago. And by then... The Venezuelan economy had already been in free fall for three and a half years, had already shrunk by a third. Yeah.
2: Let's Thank- talk about Venezuela. We've mentioned it quite a bit. Um it, it it really should be the last example of an attempt at socialism, you know, uh, even though you know the no true Scotsman fallacy will of course be raised. Um yeah. uh, it, 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 everyone should be looking at that and going, right, it is time to abandon this ideology. It is time to move away from it completely and um, to never, ever go down this path again. Um, yet we do have people like Ken Livingston uh, defending it. Um, you know, uh, I, I haven't heard Jeremy Corbyn defend it recently, although he did it in the past and he certainly hasn't come out against it. Um, you've got uh, the usual stuff. Until four years ago. You've got the usual suspects in, in, in every country, pretty much, where we've got our own useful idiots in South Africa, well, politicians. Well, our government sided with Maduro. Yeah, our, our entire government uh, from foreign policy perspective has sided with Maduro, Maduro and not the, uh, the uh, um, other interim president, so to speak, Guido or Guaido. Um, Guaido. So, thanks for that. Um, so you know you you've got, you've got people clearly picking the wrong side when the evidence clearly goes against it do you want to just run through a quick timeline of, of of how venezuela collapsed from being essentially um one of the richest or if i'm not mistaken the richest south american country 20 years ago roughly
0: yes yeah that's correct yeah i've got a venezuela chapter in the book which goes through that in chronological order and uh, I'm, I'm trying to show in parallel firstly how this economy collapsed economy that was once so prosperous, as you said, but also how uh, Western intellectuals have re- um, been talking about Venezuela at different stages, this cycle of enthusiasm, then disowning after a period of silence. So what happened was that uh, Venezuela was a petrodollar economy long before Chavez. That's uh, That was already yeah. the case before Chavez was even born. Um, and they had their golden age in the 1960s and 70s, the 70s in particular because of the oil price boom of uh, of that period. But that's what made them rich on the one hand, but that's also what um, what determined the structure of their economy. It made it turned it into a patronage economy. So you have to state. Uh, with lots of revenue from the oil trade. Oil was, was not nationalized yet at the time. It, it was done by private companies, but they, the Venezuelan state collected large royalties and they used that money to set up development agencies, regional development agencies, um, in, in that way, owning large parts of the was nominally the private sector having large public sector works projects and employed directly or indirectly indir- a large proportion of the workforce. It became a very state centered, state dominated economy. So that was already true in, in the seventies. Now this all worked perfectly well as long as the oil price was as high as it was in the seventies and constantly rising. Yeah. The problem started when uh, oil prices hit a peak in 1980 it then fell for nearly two decades. And during that period, Venezuela was still more prosperous than its neighbor countries. It was still prosperous by regional standards, but it had an extremely volatile economy. You could have fantastic growth rates in one year and then a deep recession in the next year and indicators like poverty were all over the place, rising, falling. It was all a bit chaotic, and the trouble was that they, the population, had gotten used to high levels of public spending, which uh, were now no longer affordable. So the state borrowed and uh, and printed money. That's why budget deficits went up, inflation went up. They had to be bailed out at some point by by the International Monetary Fund in the eighties, and um, but you had this political culture of uh of of resistance to economic reality where you would have one government saying we need to make adjustments we are no longer the oil rich country that we once were or, or well that same amount of oil but they would no longer get the same amount of revenue for it uh we we have to live within our means now and you would have some opposition politician uh, saying no that's not true it's a lie you're doing this uh, just out of sadism or because you're you're bad people. And and you you had this populist grandstanding. And it was in this environment that Chavismo developed. So Chavez was initially not a socialist. He was just a left-wing populist who railed against the country's oligarchy and so on. And uh, he then came to power in elected in 1980, took office uh, in 1999, no, elected in 1998 and took office in 1999. And that was the beginning of a massive oil price boom again, which lasted until 2013. And that meant that he could fulfill his promises. If that hadn't happened, if oil prices had stayed constant or fallen further, then we would probably never have heard the name Chavez. There yeah. were, he would have been just like the the, the presidents before him, um, a bit of populist grandstanding, mm. some initial he spending programs, but then being He would forced. Have run out
2: of other people's money sooner.
0: Yeah, exactly. And the name would never have become a household name. We would have no idea today uh, who, who Chavez was. But since it coincided with this oil price boom, he could fulfill his promises and became uh, extraordinarily popular and he did just that for a while just spending lots of money which any other president would also have done but then after a couple of years he started to go down a more explicitly socialist route so he started to especially control prices and you and intervene more heavily with the state owned oil company, so he didn 't nationalize it he inherited it. he just kicked out the minority private investors and took it over completely turned it into his his personal um, political plaything, turned it into a government propaganda bureau and used the funds to uh, to spend on his own pet projects and once he started controlling prices and, and exchange rates the usual problems that you would expect started to manifest themselves. You had shortages of some goods in in the supermarkets. So what he did then was, rather than uh, taking his initial interventions back, he railed against the the private sector actors in question. So they're trying to undermine me, they're sabotaging me. These are imperialist agents and uh, threatened to expropriate them and a couple of years later, he started actually doing that, especially in his uh, third term, his third and last term. He Sorry, did start...
1: I'm just going, to, just going to interrupt you for a second. Uh, yeah. That seems like the blueprint of what our government yeah, is doing absolutely. at this very moment. It's word for word, almost. <laughs> uh, except yet there's a racial tinge to it. So if mean, if not aware, the actual... African National Congress controls what well, is the government of South Africa, and uh, they now want to nationalise uh, farmland. Uh, oh, don't expropriated, do it! Expropriate without compensation to give to poor black farmers who were oppressed uh, in during the times of, of apartheid, of course. And if yeah. you're against this uh, policy, you are an imperialist white settler who should go back. To New Zealand, for some reason, and or Europe, <laughs> most especially to the Netherlands, which were the first Dutch settlers in 1652 so this this uh, model of socialism is quite well known to yeah. us here in south Africa
2: yeah do, so do you want to carry on on what uh, what Chavez then did when he when he had his third term and started expropriating everything
0: yeah well what happened then was that in those nationalized industries, productivity soon. Uh, so soon collapsed. And of course, he scared away private investors, both international ones. He, he also he expropriated one uh, one Spanish company, which was involved in, I don't know, either around the oil or doesn't matter. I, either way, he, he just signaled to private investors that he was willing to ride roughshod over the rule of law, except no limits on, on his power on, on private property in particular. And um, that is how the economy became even more oil-dependent. It was an oil-dependent economy before, but it became more so under during the Chavez years, and that was because he destroyed the alternatives. If you signal to investors that you don't respect private property rights, well, what's going to happen? Of course, nobody's going to invest anymore, and then you're only left with that state-controlled oil sector. When he came to power, oil... Revenue accounted for something like three quarters, or a bit less, of uh, of Venezuela's exports. Right now, it's virtually one hundred percent of it. They export nothing else, and that is because this policy of uh, of random expropriations destroyed the alternatives, and that's what happened. That was the wow. big difference between uh, what, what what was going on before, where the the Venezuelan. State was always interventionist, but pre-Chavez, it stayed broadly within the rule of law. It was not a banana republic. It was a place Mm -hmm. where you could invest, and where you where where an independent court system and Mm -hmm. property rights and legal procedures were more or less guaranteed. And that's what's what what changed under under Chavez and Maduro is now carrying on with this. So when socialists now say oh that's a bad example it's uh, it's only collapsing because they're they're too oil dependent but if they had diversified a little bit it would have, it would all have been fine no it happened for a particular reason yeah. that they became even more oil dependent and that was exactly the fact that they clamped down on the alternatives so Chavez. uh And Maduro made the Venezuelan economy far more oil dependent than it it ever was before them. And that was a big part of their socialist program, this uh, disrespect for private property rights. And that was also what their Western cheerleaders liked particularly about them. Exactly the fact that they would not get bogged down in legal details, that they would just say, we don't like what you're doing, we're expropriating you. And that's what they were were cheered on for by plenty of Western commentators. For for, for example, uh, Owen Jones, who is a left-wing journalist here in in Britain, uh, talked about how they expropriated a building company. I don't know what exactly it was, that Cement or something, uh, which didn't want to... Cooperate with the government on, on its housing program, on, on the terms dictated by the government. So Chavez just said, okay, that's it. You expropriate it. And, uh, this, this commentator praised that action in particular. The mm. fact that they, so the, the message was, well, finally there's a government that stands up for the people. No yeah, more sure. sucking up to business leaders. No, just uh, saying, well, you are either cooperate corporate, or, or we expropriate you? Yeah.
1: And if you look at the headline from Venezuela since about perhaps 2006, uh, I, I've, I've been following this timeline very interesting. So 2006, 2007, oh, they want to expropriate farmland because there's too many big farmers, right? They're creating a, a monopoly, a cartel of their own. So we're going to expropriate farmland, give it to poor farmers in smaller parcels, of course. Uh, and then 2010, okay, now we need to take, take away guns from citizens. Uh, And then you go to 2015, they're going to expropriate something else. And then you go to 2017, they're going to expropriate something else. And now you're stuck in a situation where 3 million people have left uh, and your tax base is shrinking, so you don't want people to leave. So you put huge tankers across the border with the neighboring country, I believe it was Brazil or Colombia. Colombia. Colombia, uh, where you now uh, basically make it impossible to leave the country uh, uh, while people get... Uh, While people starve and you know um, perform great feats of of weight loss thanks to the Maduro diet, it's all rather rather evil. And to suspect that most or quite a few Western intellectuals with their Wi-Fi internet and Starbucks coffee and iPhones praise this sort of thing uh, is um, I I, I can't be too polite, but it's rather disgusting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Although. The support has fallen more silent uh, in, mm, well, in, yes. the, in the last couple of years, but it was specifically when it was not yet visible how much damage this would cause. the The problems that we associate with Venezuela today, the, the shortages in particular, that started. Uh, pretty much just after the introduction of price controls in the early mid 2000s already. So that isn't new, but back then initially they still, it it didn't really matter that much because they had all this high oil revenue. So the state could itself then provide those goods that the private sector no longer would provide. And uh, it, it still seemed like a prosperous economy for Quite a while. It was only when oil prices then fell again in 2013, fell back to a more normal level that uh, it became clear that it was all built on sand. And that's when the West, a lot of the Western supporters suddenly fell curiously silent. It was from about the mid 2000s until 2013, 14. You had lots of prominent Westerners. Supporting Venezuela quite enthusiastically, journalists, academics, politicians. Uh, um, the story then was they're building a new kind of socialism, and this is this time is going to be completely different. This will have nothing to do with Soviet socialism, with Maoism, with North Korea, mm-hmm. any of those other examples. This is a completely new chapter in the history of socialism, and this time they will get it right. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and the, yeah. sorry, you were saying. And then it stopped abruptly in two thousand and fourteen you had You had this long period of silence and then about two years ago you you had the first voices saying, "Oh, actually, Venezuela wasn't really socialist yeah <laughs> of course not of course not
2: and 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 I think what's interesting to me is is the examples we've had in the past, which you've mentioned uh, and but more concerning is that. People are not dropping this idea. And so when you say to people, OK, well, you know, what about the Soviet Union? What about Mao? Um, what about uh, Cuba? What about Venezuela? Uh, when, you, when you point the, out these examples and you show them how defeated this ideology is, uh, what they will say to you is, yes, yes, but Norway. Um, or yes, but the Nordic states. And those are socialist states, and, and, and we know in this podcast those are not socialist countries, actually. Um, but I, I'm interested to hear your um, take and how you answer that
0: when when it gets thrown at you. Yes, I would simply say, I I would go back to what we talked about earlier, stick to the simple dictionary definition of socialism. Socialism means government ownership of the means of production, and that is not what's going on in, in the Nordic countries. They have, uh, Sweden in particular had a, a period of privatization in the 90s that was almost comparable to what happened in Britain in the 80s with Thatcherism. It's just that they have a more pragmatic political culture. You did not have an ideological war around this. You had a government that just silently, without much fuss about it, uh, privatized a lot of state-owned companies. And that's why we don't associate Sweden with privatization in the the way in which we associate Britain or or America with privatization. But basically, there is no, no massive difference in economic policy. It's not a completely different economic model. These are market economies. They just combine... A dynamic market economy, a dynamic private sector on the one hand with high taxes and high levels of income redistribution. And that's yeah. something that as a, as a free market here would not be my first choice, but that's something I can live with. I just think even that is something that doesn't travel that well outside of, of Scandinavia. They can afford higher taxes and higher levels of, of welfare provision than most of the rest of the world or or pretty much anywhere uh, else in the world because these are societies with very high levels of social cohesion and social trust. In other places, you... you, you, Yeah. yeah.
1: Sorry, Christian, because that's the theory I've heard. So, So someone once told me, and I can't remember when, basically the more diverse a society, the more freedom you actually need, the more decentralization you actually need, the freer the market needs to be. Um, especially from a state level, because it's very difficult to have um, social, not cohesion, agreement on on policies because they affect people in different ways. But if you have a country like the Nordic countries, until 2015 that is, um, that are fairly homogenous, share the same cultural values, are fairly small in terms of population, it is much easier to tread that fine line of relatively a free market, but a very high taxation, welfare rate, um, and but to replicate that uh, elsewhere is is practically impossible.
0: Yes, you can you can see that uh, in the Nordic countries, uh, you have, for example, even though there are. There is a grey economy, there are people who are avoiding taxes, let's say builders who um, do a job, a building job for cash in hand and not declaring it, that does exist there but it is much smaller than you would expect given the tax burden. So those sorts of indicators show you that this is a population that is willing and prepared to pay high taxes whereas the Mediterranean countries for example even though they're in, in absolute terms the size of their government is much smaller. They have a much larger grey economy. They don't have the same level of social cohesion. Uh, people are less willing to, to play by, to pay the taxes. And, um, that's why Scandinavia can get away with things that wouldn't work anywhere else in the world. But even then, this is just about the size of the public sector and uh, the generosity of the welfare system. Proper socialism in the sense of having the state plan the economy, set prices, set production targets. That would not work in Scandinavia either. This Mm -hmm. is, this is something that fails strictly for economic reasons. Even if you have a population that is willing to, that is very socially cohesive and willing to go along with it, you still would have the, the eye pencil problem, the coordination problems. You, the central, central planners would simply not have enough knowledge to be able to plan an economy. And that's why when Sweden in particular uh, tried to move further into the direction of proper socialism in the 80s, as opposed to just a big state, when they tried to intervene more heavily with with, uh, corporate governance structures and try to tell private companies what to do, that didn't end well for them either. So this type of... Genuinely, socialist policies doesn't work in, in Sweden any more than, than it would work anywhere else. So you can have a bigger state in Sweden, but you can't have but, socialism there either.
2: But, but even then, I think what, what's quite interesting is, um, you know, as you mentioned, those countries are, are market economies. Um, they have some of the lowest uh, corporate tax rates in the world, even though private tax rates are very high. So, if uh, I'm not mistaken, I think their tax rates are in the region of about 15%, um, which are amongst the lowest in the world, um, besides for obviously it's the tax, the tax havens. Um, but it still remains to be seen long term if their socialized welfare systems can survive. Uh, you look specifically at something like healthcare. Uh, where there the government is running the healthcare system and they are centrally planning the healthcare system and as as healthcare becomes more complex, um, as the number of procedures that need to be performed uh, becomes more complex, become uh, you know more advanced, more expensive, but they you know obviously do come down over time, but there's just more healthcare that can be provided to a population at a at a greater cost. Whether in fact there is enough money to go around to cover this. Um, I mean, I would argue that the, the, U, the UK is a good example that this is starting to fail.
0: Yeah, I think it's never been particularly successful here. It's just uh, that previously we wouldn't really compare healthcare across countries, and it, it wasn't so clear that the British system was behind others. But as far as the time series go back, it's not that there was ever a golden age. I think Britain has always been fairly poor in terms of health outcomes. Uh,
2: do you want to just elaborate a little bit? Because I know you, you do have a background in, in sort of um, the healthcare side of things, and and why why these sort of socialised healthcare systems are failing. We have we've got a government here looking at introducing a national health insurance, which is essentially uh, modelled on several countries. Uh, notably some of the Nordic countries, um, and is meant to uh, replicate the NHS uh, to some extent. Um, what's, uh, what's the reason why these, these systems also end up uh, ultimately collapsing over time?
0: Well, it's the same reasons as in any other sector. You Central planners lack the knowledge, and, uh, and you need competitive mechanisms in healthcare, as as much as anywhere else, it it must be clear from the perspective of a healthcare provider that their economic survival depends on whether customers are happy with what they're receiving or not. And if if customers can go elsewhere, uh, then then you have a very different situation than having guaranteed a guaranteed customer base of people who can't move away. Now that that doesn't have to mean that uh, that healthcare cannot be uh, largely or, or even fully publicly funded or that, uh, you cannot make sure in other ways that, uh, that, that, poor people can get healthcare. But what, what I'd argue is, is simply that, uh, if it's access to healthcare that, that you're worried about, and I'm guessing that would be an issue in, in South Africa probably, uh, then the way to, to, to do that is not to have the government take over the provision of healthcare, you just need to make sure that uh, that your private system that uh, covers everybody. I mean, that's uh, if you compare Britain to the insurance systems that you get in, in other parts of Western Europe, uh, because not many places have an NHS-type system. Uh, for, for example, Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland, and Belgium, they had a private insurance system. Before long before the state did anything, and at, at some point, the government just decided that they wanted to make sure that everybody is covered by the system, and right. therefore they introduced premium subsidies, they made sure that health insurers cannot discriminate on the basis of health status, and... Um, and the prices went up, I would guess. They did, yes, but they managed to achieve universal healthcare systems nonetheless, and within what is still broadly a market based framework. So you still have private insurers, private healthcare providers, you have a market of sorts, you just have the government making sure that everybody can take part in that market. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So so Christian, just to just to end off the this podcast, and it's been really illuminating, even for me who I thought, you know, new things. I've learned quite a bit. Um so Socialism always stands up, supposedly, for the poor and the oppressed. Um, what, ideally, if someone had to ask a capitalist like us or like you, what does the free market do for the poor and oppressed? How does it help them in a way that perhaps other systems do not? Uh, if you had to have like a short, a short, you know, statement to someone, how would you explain the value of the free market in helping the poor and the oppressed?
0: Well I would simply look at the track record of market economies and of of economies that are liberalizing on the whole. Things are getting a lot better globally there 's plenty of of uh, of data that shows how poverty is falling around the world just over the course of of my lifetime. I was born in one thousand nine hundred and eighty from then to today extreme poverty on a global level has fallen from more than 40% then of the global population to less than 10% today that's that's a massive improvement biggest ever in human history and that is not something that just happened randomly it was particularly concentrated in places that liberalized their economies so much of it of course has occurred in china and not coincidentally that was during the time that they Relatively speaking, liberalized their economy, went away from the economy they had inherited from Mao Zedong, a fully socialist economy, to this hybrid uh, half-socialist, half-capitalist system that they have now. And this is a pattern that you can see around the world. India was also a heavily protected economy before before the 1990s, then liberalized a little bit starting from a very restrictive level, but nonetheless. And uh, poverty has also dropped a lot since then. And you get this association all the time that um, if you look at I mean, things like economic freedom, the, the degree to which an economy is market-based capitalist can be measured uh, within limits. There is the economic freedom of the world index, which tries to measure the the degree of uh of market orientation in an economy on a scale from 0 to 10 where 0 would mean pure communism 10 would be pure capitalism and uh you can really see that places don't get closer to capitalism even though none of them yeah go there all the way, even though none of them get a 10 out of 10, but some get 8 point something, 7 point something. Those are the sorts of places where you want to live. That is places like Hong Kong, Singapore, Switzerland, and then to a lesser extent, New Zealand and Canada. The places where people want to migrate to, rather than places that have to worry about emigration. And it's in those places that the poor are... that well, are best off, even though they, they, they might not be as as rich as some of their fellow countrymen. But mm-hmm. I would much rather be poor in Switzerland than mm-hmm. relatively rich in Venezuela. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Christian, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show and um, just a really a masterclass in uh, in, in all the problems with socialism and uh, how to approach a lot of these arguments that people might uh, find themselves getting
0: into. Well, thanks for the invitation. Enjoyed it.
1: Oh, well, thank you very much, Christian. Thankfully the the local government won't go down that same path. They will find the error of their ways soon enough, I suppose. Good luck with that. Yeah, well, good luck with that. Exactly. <laughs> while we are talking to you in the dark because electricity is not on for four hours. Um, But nevertheless, Christian, thank you so much. And I hope whoever does fund you uh, you (laughs) increases the budget, because it's very important that uh, you're out there to, to, to mock the intellectuals who approve of dangerous and disgusting things. I do.
2: Great, thank you so much, Christian, and uh, we hope to chat to you sometime in the future. And good luck with the book. Um, Do you want to just plug your book quickly, or your social media, so people can find you?
0: Um, How do I do that?
2: Well, uh, your book, I assume, is going to be available on Amazon, or whereabouts can people?
0: Ah, okay. No, the book, the book will be available here on the IEA website as www.iea.org.uk great and you can download it for free you can also get it on amazon or plenty of other online retailers but why not get it directly from the source
1: a capitalist giving something away for free Jeez. <laughs> this whole hour's it's unpriced
0: free at a point of use <laughs> perfect perfect
1: christian thanks so much
2: and uh, have, a, have a great rest of your day thank you you too bye cheers eh?
1: well there you go jonathan a blueprint for the eff and the ANC to follow.
2: Well, not only a blueprint. I mean, they're already on that blueprint, as you mentioned. Uh, but some of the stuff Christians were saying, I was just sitting here thinking, we are mirroring Venezuela. We we are. It's almost like we're we're doing exactly what they did. We are just, you know, either six or eight years
1: behind them, depending. Right. But, it, but it's a, it's a, as you said, it's a it's a familiar path. Mm. You you nationalize some things. You take away rights. You take away guns. Uh, And then you have uh, complete control on the economy by the state and you prevent people from leaving because it interrupts the plan. Um, So, yeah, I hope that the listeners understand that we let Christians speak for a very long time, but that is to show the reasons why you should be rather worried about your future.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And if you're in doubt, uh, I do hope the past week of... uh, Power outages, uh, load shedding has uh, made you a little bit more aware that uh, the policies that government talks about at at elective conferences and the things that people talk about on this podcast, uh, the things that people tweet about, uh, things that people at the IRR, you know, that terrible think tank write about. Um, These are not uh, philosophical ideas alone These are things that are happening And are affecting our lives directly And uh, we really need to
1: be more aware of them And fight against them as best we can Indeed, and it's an indictment on on people like us To actually, um, you know We haven't fought the ideas well enough Uh, We started this podcast to fight the ideas And hopefully, thankfully, it has, you know Uh, reach the wide audience, but you need to fight the ideas as well. If you can't fight them, you must fund them. So on that uh, note, send us money. Yes, absolutely. You can support us on PayPal. Uh,
2: As always, uh, we are still on some other uh, less uh, likable platforms for the time being and are developing a new way for you to support the show uh, but anyway you can we'd uh, really appreciate it obviously as always your downloads are very supportive and helpful uh, if you review the show if you're listening on
1: iTunes or Google uh, Android store uh, that would be great and even if you don't want to pay on PayPal or things like that, send an email, info at renegadereport.co.za. We'll happily send you banking details and a lovely email to say thank you. Because you're fighting the battles of ideas. You're fighting for an investment in the future of South Africa. We're doing our small part. Uh, we are going to increase that small part to hopefully a medium part in a very short term. But uh, we are not past the post. Mm. There's there's uh, not not hope. I don't like the word hope. There's lots of work to be done, but uh, don't think that this is an inevitable conclusion. There's still a lot of space to manoeuvre and work uh, to make South Africa, uh, you know, great. <laughs> make South Africa great Not again? again, or Not just, again. just 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 great. Not again, because that would be racist. <laughs>
2: All right. So as always, follow them on, on Twitter at Roman Cabernet, myself at Jonathan Underscore Wit, um, on uh, on Facebook, The Renegade Reports at renegade underscore report. Uh, uh, sorry, not uh, not Facebook on Twitter, and uh, on Facebook, the group and the page. You can, of course, find our guest this week on Twitter as well. He is Christian Nimitz. That's K underscore Nimitz, N-I-E M-I-E-T-Z. Thank you, as always, for listening. We really appreciate it, and we'll catch you next time. Cheers.